Uh, It's my privilege to speak tonight from God's Word as we continue our series in the book of James. Um, I'll be looking at James 1, 13 to 18. Uh, I'll pray before we start. Dear Heavenly Father, please speak to us tonight through your Word. Convict us, encourage us, help us to see our great need for you and draw nearer to you. Help us to know the truth about ourselves and the truth about you. In Jesus' name, Amen. Okay, cool. Um, on our government's Money Smart website, there is a story about an Australian couple, Maria and Jason. They had a nice, kind friend of 40 years named Steve. This friend Steve convinced them to get a loan for $70,000 and invest it in an incredibly promising financial scheme he knew about. What a guy. So good that it would give returns of up to 40% and fast. Isn't he just the best? Steve kindly helped them secure the loan for the money and then invested it for them with his business partner. Now some time passed and no returns seemed to be forthcoming. Steve gave Maria and Jason different, different explanations for why they weren't seeing any of their money. And Maria and Jason hung in there with Steve through all his many excuses. They wanted to believe him as he uh, as they didn't want to think that they had lost all their money. And after all, he was an old friend. But sadly for them, it turned out things weren't okay after all. Rather than investing their money like he promised, Steve had taken it all for himself. All Maria and Jason's borrowed money was gone with nothing to show for it but an enormous debt that they had to use Jason's inheritance to pay off. This uh, this story was published by our government to warn us uh, not to be deceived by a scam like this one or by one of the many other scams out there. And what is very evident is there is no shortage of people out there who want nothing more than to trick you into giving you their money. Uh, giving them your money. They dedicate their lives to deceiving others. Uh, Don't you just hate that? That feeling when you realize you've been lied to, robbed, cheated, or made a fool of. It's embarrassing and it's damaging. Sometimes the impact of people's deception can be felt for the rest of your life. And I think what makes it especially painful for each one of us is that Mixed in with the lies you're hearing from uh, others are lies that you can be telling yourself at the same time. Maria and Jason didn't want to think that they had lost all their money. They fooled themselves into ignoring the obvious warning signs in front of them because they wanted so much for the whole thing to be legitimate. The lies appealed to something deep inside them. Maybe it was a desire to be rich quick or to have a nice, comfortable retirement. And so they kept telling themselves it was all okay. They were blind to the truth in front of them uh, because they couldn't bear the thought of being wrong about the whole thing. In this uh, passage we're looking at this evening, the author, James, is warning the original Christian hearers of his letter and Christians today not to be deceived and not to be self-deceived. In verse 16, it says, Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Well, what about? 
But the dodgy investment scammer's name Steve, going around churches ripping people off. Sorry if your name's Steve. It's nothing personal. Um, no, it was far more serious than being ripped off financially. To be deceived by the lies James addresses here would actually rob them of joy, of the knowledge of God's love, of the wonderful peace that we can have as believers. And believing these lies would lead to Christians being ripped off spiritually, even to the extent of being robbed of the crown of life James speaks about in verse 12. So what are these lies? For a bit of context, as we saw last week at the start of chapter 1, there were Christians who uh, here who were going uh, through suffering and persecution. They were scattered, possibly homeless, jobless, and facing enormous uncertainty about almost everything that was going on in their lives. Their faith was being tested, and they had a choice. Would they keep trusting God through it all? Or would they start to doubt him and give in to temptation? I'm sure they would have felt temptation to give up and walk away from God. Or maybe temptation to aggressively fight back against those who were persecuting them. Or temptation to live to please the people around them rather than being faithful witnesses to Christ. And with these difficulties and uh, strong temptations all around, it would have been really easy to start believing and embracing lies about God and about themselves. Lies about God's goodness and love for them. And lies about their own sin and the temptation they were experiencing. James wanted to make sure that these Christians, and us today as we read this, would see the lies for what they are. God, through his word, wants us all to truly know and believe the truth about ourselves as fallen humans and the truth about himself, our loving God who has saved us. And let's look firstly at the lie we see about God in verse 13. No one undergoing a trial should say, I am being tempted by God, since God is not tempted by evil and he himself doesn't tempt anyone. No one undergoing a trial should say, I am being tempted by God. When things are difficult, when you're out of a job or you've been rejected by those around you or you're struggling in singleness or your marriage feels like it's a hard slog every day, then it's easy to believe the first lie about God. This lie in its simplest form is that God is not good. As we saw last week in verses 1 to 12 of chapter 1, Going through times of trial and testing in the Christian life should be expected. And God uses these difficult times to draw us closer to him and make us more mature believers. He wants us to be able to appreciate and glorify him more and more. However, when these trials come, we can face temptation to sin, to put our trust in something else other than God, instead of relying on him completely and drawing nearer to him. As one commentator puts it, if we are not careful, the testings on the outside may become testing, uh, temptations on the inside. When our circumstances are difficult, we may find ourselves complaining against God, questioning his love and resisting his will. At this point, Satan provides us with an opportunity to escape the difficulty. And this opportunity is temptation. In times of temptation and trial, it is so easy to doubt God's goodness for you. 
to believe the lie that he doesn't really care about you or want what's best for you. And we can feel the temptation to look elsewhere for relief. And sadly, we can also believe the lie that God isn't good even when things are great. I mean, Adam and Eve believed this at the very beginning in the Garden of Eden when everything was perfect. In Genesis chapter 3, uh, Satan said to Eve, You will not certainly die, but God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Satan told Adam and Eve that God was holding out on them, and they believed him. They believed that God didn't have their best interests at heart, but was actually hindering their enjoyment and fullness. And so they gave in to temptation and disobeyed him. Eating the forbidden fruit was a statement saying that they no longer trusted God and his good plan for them. To believe that God is tempting you, like we see in verse 13, is to doubt God's good and perfect character. To no longer trust that he's got your best interests at heart. And sadly, when we do this, we're actively trying to push away the one who really loves us most. And just to top it all off, we also accuse him of evil and blame him for our temptation and sin at the same time. Do you think you do this? I think it's actually very common and easy for us to do. Our logic goes like this. God is in control of my situation. So if I'm feeling like it's too hard not to give in to temptation, then it's his fault for not changing my circumstances. So we might say, God, if you didn't want me to have a non-Christian boyfriend or girlfriend, you would have provided someone for me already. God, if you really wanted me to be more generous with my money, you would have given me a better paying job. God, if you wanted me to love and be kind to my husband or wife, then you would have given us an easier and less stressful marriage. God, if you wanted me to respect my parents, you would have made them far easier to get along with. God, if you wanted me to be honest at work, then you wouldn't have made it so hard and risky to tell the truth. I could lose my job if I did what you wanted. We don't remember God's promises in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. But we forget this and instead look to put the blame on God in order to excuse ourselves for our sin. Just as we need to be careful not to be deceived about God, we also need to make sure we're not being deceived about ourselves. Just as we embrace the lie that God's not good, we can all too easily believe a lie about ourselves, that we're not really not that bad. So the second warning we see here is don't be deceived about yourself. Believing the lie that in ourselves we're quite good people makes us incredible blame shifters. Again, you can see it right at the beginning in the Garden of Eden, immediately after Adam and Eve sinned. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, 
What is it you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Now, Adam could have been honest with God here, and as the head of his family unit, taken responsibility for the calamity he's just brought upon the entire world. Instead, he blames his sin on God and his wife, the woman you put here with me. And Eve wasn't willing to take the blame either. She, she chose to put the blame on the devil, as though she had no control over her actions. It seems pretty ridiculous, but uh, we can do it all the time. If we're not directly blaming God, we're blaming the devil, or our upbringing, or our environment and culture, or the people around us. Anyone but ourselves. So what's the danger here? What are we being warned not uh, why are we being warned not to believe these lies about God and about ourselves? And to believe that God is not good and that you're not to blame for your sin will lead you to doubt God's good plan for you and excuse your own disobedience. So when hardships come, you'll distance yourself from God rather than running to him for comfort as he wants you to. When you're being tempted to take the easy way out offered to you by the devil, you'll go for it because you can't trust that God can bring good out of the situation like he's promised. Rather than growing closer to God in times of testing, you'll give way under it. You'll give up on your marriage. You'll give yourself to that relationship with a non-Christian. You'll allow yourself to be dishonest at work in order to look better or to fit in. And you'll excuse all these things and tell yourself that you're really not that bad that you're justified in making all these decisions. And if only God really understood your situation, he wouldn't disapprove. And this is dangerous deception. And to fully embrace these lies is to reject God completely, just as the majority of the world has done throughout history. So how do we avoid being sucked in by these lies? As we're about to see, James wants us to know and accept the truth about God and about ourselves. So firstly, what is the truth about yourself and the temptation you experience? Verses 14 and 15. But each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. The truth is, even though we hate to admit it, we're all deeply flawed and sinful people. James wants us to know clearly that it's our own evil desires that lead to temptation and then to sin. It's not anyone else's fault. We mustn't blame others but take responsibility for our own sin and fight against it. That's why we see James addressing different sinful temptations in the lives of the Christians he's writing to. He wants them to see their sin for what it is and take action against it. For example, in chapter 2, he addresses favoritism, selfishness, and a lack of love. In chapter 3, sinful speech. In chapter 4, pride, sinful criticizing, arrogance, and boasting. Then in chapter 5, love of money, complaining, dishonesty, and straying from the truth of the gospel. We need this reminder as Christians. That lust you feel, it comes from the evil desires in your heart. That envy or covetousness you feel, it comes from the evil desires in your heart. No matter where you go 
All the people you choose to hang out with, those evil desires will follow you and show themselves. So rather than trying to explain away the evil in your heart or pin it on others, we need to confess it before our gracious and loving God. Know that even as a Christian who has been given a new heart, you will be tempted to sin. And this temptation comes from your own lingering sinful desires, which will lead to sin and death if we don't fight against them. We must all battle against temptation and sin every day of our Christian lives, repenting daily for the ways we don't do what is good. We can have such a great appetite for sin, even though we know what's good, right and better, and so we must fight the urge to feed that appetite and allow it to grow. Temptation to sin will come with the sinful desires we have in our hearts. But it's important to note that temptation is not sin in itself. In verse 15, we see that after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. Jesus was tempted by the devil, and yet he never sinned. Job in the Old Testament would have faced enormous temptation to blame God for his hardships, yet he didn't. And we read, In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. It is as you act on your sinful desires, allowing them to conceive or to come alive, that you then produce sin. Don't allow your desire to conceive. Don't act on it and let it grow into sin, but squash it. And don't doubt the evil you're capable of doing if you let your sinful desires grow in your heart unchecked. Always remember where sin will take you. The wages of sin is death. As we see in these verses, although sin can be so deceptively enticing, like nice juicy bait, the reality is that that bait is always laced with poison. And we must always remember that once we have our fill, we will be far from satisfied. True joy and happiness will never be found in following your sinful desires. Only pain and suffering. When sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. So do not be deceived. Now, knowing the truth about ourselves isn't exactly uplifting. In fact, it's quite disheartening on its own. We're sinful, and we've got no one else to blame for our sin but ourselves. And by itself, it's really not helpful at all. But what we must hear, know, and truly believe, if we're to have any hope of fighting this sin that causes death, is the truth about God, about who he is and what he's done. And that's where James goes next. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. By his choice he gave us birth by the word of truth, so that we would be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. No matter how we're feeling about ourselves or about God, we desperately need to understand and remember that God is good. That is why sin is so detestable to him. He is perfectly good and holy. And as we see here, rather than God being one who tempts us to sin and watches us hoping we'll fail, he is the giver of every good gift. Every good and perfect gift is from above. And just think about it for a second. 
Every single positive thing in your life is from God. Whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, the enjoyment you get from listening to your favorite song or viewing that sunset, laughter, friendship, your Christian or non-Christian community that supports you, loving family, safety, happy memories, the enjoyment of good food like KFC, they're all from God. If God were not the kind and loving God that he is, this entire world would be void of anything remotely joyful, positive and nice. How horrible that would be. We must be reminded time and time again of God's holiness and goodness. He is not capable of sin or even having sin in his presence. He is absolutely perfect and just and kind. He is the Father of lights, creator of everything, and he does not change like shifting shadows. The same God who dealt patiently with his chosen people in the Old Testament is the same God who so quickly forgave the disciples who deserted him and brought them back to himself. This is the same patient and kind God we serve and know, and he is always with you, working in all things for the good of those who love him. Our God is a wonderful God. He created us. He knows us better than he, we know ourselves. And if we're Christians, he has given us life in himself. In verse 18, by his own choice, he gave us birth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. We have experienced God's incredible, undeserved, unconditional love and mercy through Jesus' sacrifice for us. And this word of truth through which we have been given new birth. We must never let ourselves forget this. Rather than setting us up to fail and sin, God instead wants only good for us. And he's proven that through Jesus' work on the cross. Jesus is alive, and if you're a Christian, he has drawn you to himself and given you the promise of an eternal future with him in paradise. He knows your heart your weakness, your sin. And he has chosen you to be part of his family anyway. There is no shortage of grace to be found in Christ, but we must recognize our need for it in order to ask him to provide it. If we shift the blame away for our sin rather than accepting responsibility, then we won't see the need for Jesus, and this will show itself in how we view and treat him. Remember the truth about yourself. You need Jesus now just as you needed him when you first believed. You need the forgiveness and love that he offers every day. Nothing else and no one else will truly satisfy. And noting that um, just as you have been given birth by the word of truth, you must keep growing in it, spending time in God's word and being shaped by it so that you will be made more like God. Remember too when you're struggling with sin that through Christ you have a new identity. You have been set free from the power of sin and death. As Paul writes in Romans 6, 11-14, In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. 
Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master, because you are not under the law but under grace. Sin shall no longer be your master. By the power of God's Holy Spirit who is with you, you can say no to sin and temptation. You have a choice each time you feel desire for what is evil springing up in your heart. Will you see it for what it is? Or will you deceive yourself into thinking it's okay? It's vital also that we know the future God has for us as his dearly loved children. As you can see in verse 18, you have been given birth by the word of truth, so you would be a kind of first fruits of God's creatures. As God's people, we have been set apart as holy and good to him. Uh, John Blanchard writes, In this fascinating phrase, James is borrowing language from the Old Testament, where the Israelites were required to bring to the priest a sheaf of the first grain of your... Oh, this is a quote. Bring to the priest a sheaf of the first grain of your harvest. In Leviticus 23.10. The first fruits constituted something very special. A part of the crop set apart for God in a particular way. And Christians too can humbly claim that God has set them apart in a special way from all the rest of humanity. In Paul's words, our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and purify for himself a people that are his very own. In Titus 2, 13-14. What a dignity is ours as the children of God. We may be pilgrims here on earth, but we are not tramps. We are the people of God and as such have great dignity. God has set us apart as treasured possessions, above all else in his incredible creation. He cares deeply about his people. We are so special to him. And he is preparing us for the day when we'll be made perfect forever, dwelling with him, able to please him and enjoy him perfectly. So I want to encourage you as we finish up to respond to James's warnings and encouragements. But when trials come, don't push God away, but humbly draw nearer to him. Say with the psalmist in Psalm 46, God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. Therefore we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. Know deeply that, the sin, uh, that sin will always harm you and others. In fact, it leads to death. So the God who truly loves you and who is truly good will never encourage you to entertain and feed your sinful desires. Instead, flee temptation and cling to God. Know your identity as one of his children, able to bring everything before him. Remember that good things are not found apart from God. He is their source. Seek a renewed mind and heart daily, that you would be so filled with the joy of knowing God and his great love for you that your appetite for sin would be dulled. Don't encourage your hunger and thirst for what is evil, but hunger and thirst for righteousness.
Know and remember your new identity in Christ as God's children and a kind of first fruits of his creatures. And we can be sure that we have a great future ahead of us in eternity. We have a great God who is with us. So what are you going to do in trial now? Maybe you're right in the middle of a trial. Maybe you've just come through one. Maybe one is right around the corner for you. Wherever you might be, examine and ask yourself, are there lies about God and about yourself that you're clinging to? Do you find yourself living and relating to God as though he's not good? Are you making excuses for the bad patterns that you're in? Are you blaming God rather than confessing yourself um, before him? Reject the lies. Are you in awe of God's wonderful goodness and love that he's displayed towards you time and time again? Do you recognize that you're deeply flawed yet completely loved and treasured by God? That he will never leave you nor forsake you? Because in times where life is easy and in times when life is tough, God is with you and he is good. Living his way will always be the best way. Embrace this wonderful truth. And let's pray. Dear God, Father of lights, we thank you that you do not change like shifting shadows. Thank you that you are good, you always have been and you always will be. Help us to see your goodness when we're going through trials and when we're not. Help us to remember how good you are. Help us not to doubt your goodness, not to excuse ourselves for our sin, but see that it leads to death. Sorry for the times we blame you or others for our sin rather than praising you for the love you have shown us in Jesus and every good and perfect gift that you give. We're sorry for the ways we disobey you and we thank you for your wonderful forgiveness and love. In Jesus' name, Amen.